me get my notes of how is everybody this morning. Good. Did anybody drink more water than usual last week? Yeah? Did anybody take a nap on purpose last week? I did. Okay. Um, so here we are back together again. Um, probably many of you were here last week, and so you know that we're picking up where we left off in Psalm 23, which we also call the Shepherd Psalm. Um, for the benefit of those who weren't here, I'll give a quick recap. Um, but I'd also encourage you, if you have the time, to check out the recording of the full sermon, especially if you enjoy and appreciate the comedian Jim Gaffigan. If you like coffee, but you don't like feeling panicky from drinking too much coffee, and especially, especially if you have always understood the phrases from the psalm, I shall not want, or makes me lie down, as the shepherd needing to whip these dumb, disobedient sheep into shape. Um, if that's how you've experienced it, I think that you would enjoy hearing a different perspective. Um, and I think you'll enjoy savoring more of Psalm 23 with us here today. Um, what we talked about, again, just to recap, we talked about God being our shepherd who leads us to places of refreshment, um, how God takes us to those sort of familiar places that restore our souls, those places that feel like a breath of fresh air or a good cold drink of water when we're very thirsty. And we also said that God helps to lead us uh, when we have to go into uncharted and unfamiliar territory, um, that we can see that God has already led other people that way. We can almost see the footsteps making a path for people that have gone ahead of us that testify to his divine faithfulness. Um, but let's read the whole of Psalm 23 together, and I want you to say, here's a challenge, I want you to pay special attention and see if you can catch one major difference between the first three verses, I'll give you the clue when, we're, when we've completed verse three and starting verse four, um, and our final three verses, there's something really different about them, so let's see who can catch that. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And now verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely... Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So I know we are in a room with some pretty brilliant people. So I'm sure that many of you, even all of you, when asked to pay close attention, might notice that major difference. Anybody? What did you notice? Let's say it louder. He versus you. The first three verses, he, he, he. It's an observation. Um, David is telling a third party about what God is like. And then we get to verse 4, and there's a shift. And the, the conversation is no longer between David and the third party about an observation. It is a conversation directly with the you, um, a personal conversation. And I already had pointed out last week that we get to the, very, the third word of this psalm, the, the word my, the Lord is my shepherd, and contrasting that with just saying the Lord is a shepherd, the Lord is the shepherd. Um, and so we know that this is going to be a piece of poetry that has a personal bent to it. Um, 
Um, it, it starts out with the assumption of a relationship um, where there's belonging, and we might even say that there's intimacy. Um, but what David does in this second half of the psalm is that he shifts from this observation and speaking directly to God and, and I think it clues us in that we're going to be getting even more personal. So if we were pretty personal last week, we're going to be getting even more personal this week. Um, and now I confess, this I'm going to take you on a little imaginary tour with me. This might be no more than my imaginative reading of the text, but I'd like to think about it this way. I'd like to think that maybe David is writing these three first verses in a reflection of what God, his shepherd, is like. And then it ends up being a transformative experience for him to reflect on that. So as he gives testimony to this third party of what God is like, and he, as he recounts God's faithfulness, it's like he suddenly gets swept up in these thoughts about God's, and he can't help but just turn his voice directly to God. Um, and it's kind of like this. This is where I'm getting a little imaginative. I tried really hard to rack my brain and Google search to figure to find a great video clip for a specific instance, um, a, something from a movie or a television that exemplified this. Uh, I could not, but I feel like it's cliche enough that when I describe it, you're going to know exactly what I mean. And I think it's actually such a common trope that there's this whole sea of examples that not one single one rose to the surface. Um, so I think you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So picture this. This is either something happening in real life or maybe in a movie before your eyes. Um, there's this lovey-dovey in-love couple. Maybe they're very freshly in love. And, you know, you're sitting across the table from them. You just met them somewhere. And you say, oh, well, how did you both, how did you meet? And it starts out, um, they start telling the story. And it's maybe like a he said, she said, a, well, you know, we worked together. And I always noticed her. And she had this pink dress that she wore. And, um, and he was always, you know, made up reasons to come over and talk to me, whatever, back and forth and back and forth. And then at some point in the conversation, this love-filled couple forgets you're there. And they're talking to you, and you were this, and I thought I had never seen someone so beautiful, and I was so impressed with this. And maybe it even escalates to the point of them saying, and I love you. No, I love you more. No, I love you more. Um, it's, you've seen that, right? We can't, if you figure out a movie with that, if you figure out a great clip, let me know. Email me this week if it's coming to mind now. But it's so common. We know this, where people get so involved in each other when talking about the other that they can't help but direct their attention toward each other. Um, I did sort of think of an example of this where the third party just disappears and everybody's like, whoa. Um, they might have been like, whoa, get a room. Um, it doesn't exactly match, but I think you'll get it. There's times where these lovers almost exist in a separate time and place, totally caught up in each other. Um, if you pay even a smidge of attention to pop culture and entertainment news, you know that there was a big buzz after one Oscar performance in particular last year at the Oscars. Anybody know what I'm talking about? What is it? Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. Um, singing their song Shallow from the movie A Star is Born, it caused a seismic reaction in, for viewers in real time, for those who caught the buzz and were looking up the video the next day and tweeting about it. Um, I'm going to give them credit for being skilled actors, and we're not going to go into any theories about what was really going on. But um, that was some acting. Um, people watched that, and there was this, they were, it did not matter that they had millions of viewers at home. It did not matter that there were thousands of people in that theater. There were only two of them in the world. And, um, you know, 
This is sort of how I like to imagine that intimacy between David and his shepherd. That we're going to, and we're going to zone in and pay attention. um, Instead of, you know, we might see somebody like this and yell, like I said, get a room. But instead of saying get a room to David and the shepherd, we're going to dig in. We're going to see what their conversation is like. We're going to eavesdrop a little bit and try to savor what this beautiful intimacy is. Um, So just like last week where we went over with a fine-tooth comb and tried to look at the Hebrew, um, the Hebrew words, the Hebrew definitions of these English words, we're going to do a lot of the same things. And some things that might be lost on us as 21st century English speakers, we're going to try to uh, redeem and and get some value out of. Um, So let's just jump into that very first verse. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Now, again, as I've said with some of the other verses, I took this at my evangelical upbringing face value, and I thought that it just meant that I didn't have to be afraid of death, whether it was my own death or the death of somebody I loved. Um, But studying uh, for this talk, I was able to find out something that illuminated this verse for me so much more. Uh, First of all, the valley of the shadow of death is almost certainly referring to a specific valley, one that would be known to all of the locals as shadow of death. So in Hebrew, compound words like the one that means shadow of death is only used when you're talking about names of specific places. So we don't know why it was named that. Uh, We don't know why David chose to use this as an example, but I'm going to argue that it doesn't matter because that's not the really compelling part of this verse. You're not going to feel like you are missing anything by not knowing about shadow of death when we get into focusing on the meaning of the word valley. Um, Usually, if I hear the word valley, I'm thinking of something pretty nice, right? You know, like a valley girl. A valley girl is not living in a rough spot. Um, I actually grew up just up the hill from a spot that we called the valley in Akron, Ohio. And it was the valley, (coughs) part of the Cuyahoga Valley, the valley created by the Cuyahoga River. Um, It is home to one of my very favorite spots on earth. There's miles and miles of a bike trail that goes along the old Ohio Erie Canal and between the canal and the Cuyahoga River. Um, And even though Philadelphia has been my home for the past 20 years, I love being here and it will be hopefully my forever home. This is the one thing that I actually get kind of like physically achy thinking about how much I miss this beautiful spot and the time that I spent there. The waterfalls and trees and the wildlife, um, and especially this time, of years when the, this time of year when the leaves start changing. Some of my very best memories are being in that valley and sitting on a bridge overlooking a marsh and um, you know, spending time with good friends or just taking a nature on my own. So this is what we think of usually with the valley, right? Fertile, a beautiful place. I mean... Think of Hidden Valley Ranch for crying out loud. (laughs) Valleys are supposed to be beautiful and make you want to eat your vegetables. But valley, or the Hebrew word for it in this verse, actually means a deep, narrow gorge. It's a place that's dark and frightening, and I think this is key. There is no exit. You can only get out the way you came in or the one exit on the other side. You can't climb your way out and escape any other way other than persisting on. Sounds pretty unpleasant, right? Not really Hidden Valley Ranch there. But we're going to go ahead and take it up a few notches because the word for valley is derived from a word that means arrogance and pride. 
as in a person who puts up high walls around themselves, shutting themselves off from the outside world. Does anybody feel that inside them? You know that sort of panicky feeling that you get when you realize that um, you are more capable than anybody of destroying yourself? Um, when you're the one who nearly messed everything up by your own self-constructed pride or arrogance, and you find yourself in that closed-in place, that dark place. It's like the, the call is coming from inside the house. You can't blame someone else. It is, for me, one of the worst feelings. So maybe this would describe it better. Even though I walk through my self-constructed valley of arrogance and pride, walling myself off from the world, I won't be afraid because you are with me. Sometimes it feels like there's no escape from those self-constructed prisons or our self-inflected wounds. But even in that place, God does not leave us to our own self-destructive devices. God doesn't say, hey, give me a call when you get to the other side. Because God is that shepherding companion who goes step by step, leading and guiding through that very valley. Because that with us, and our Hebrew word for with, is another power-packed word. With, in this passage, means to be equal with, to be beside them. God is walking step by step beside their sheep along this treacherous way. And to me, that is the ultimate picture of a relationship that is free of shame, side by side. There's no sense that the shepherd is shaming the sheep for finding her way into this predicament of the gorge. This is God with us. This is not the hierarchy of a domineering divine parent who is disappointed with their child. This is the divine who is perfectly loving, who is perfectly powerful, and the exercise of these qualities becomes step-in-step walking beside their sheep through that valley. And what does the shepherd use to help the sheep, their child, through this valley? The verse says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God does not want their sheep to remain in the valley. If you remember, sheep have the innate fear of moving water. We talked about that week. And it's a helpful survival tool because if you are in a deep gorge like that, a flash flood in the desert could come at any time and overtake the entire gorge. So the shepherd uses this stick that's a rod to steer the way, to nudge in the right direction, and uses a staff to support in the same way that a hiking stick would offer support. So this branch that makes up the rod and the staff, it is not one of punishment. And let me say this quite clearly, because last week I told you how this subject of God as a shepherd and we as their sheep has elicited a whole lot of junk teaching rooted in toxic, authoritarian, authoritarian religion. And I'm not sure what's more upsetting and frustrating when I would read about folks claiming that, you know, the good shepherd sometimes just has to break the legs of the sheep to keep them from wandering away. And then when someone corrects that and say, actually, there's no biblical example of that and there's no historical example of that. And yet you go to the comment section and people are saying, but, 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 but. Because there's something to this safety and this persistence of, um, of this toxic approach of a, of a punishing, retributive parent who uses violence to keep children in line. Um, and that is not true. What, what is true is that Christ, 
who is the face of God, surely cannot be a leg breaker. Those commenters cannot, they might grasp for any excuse to maintain God in the image of redemptive violence, but no, this is not true. Gets me a little hot talking about it. Um, You may have heard this even in the context of parenting, the good old proverb, spare the rod, spoil the child. And it's often used not just as biblical permission, but a biblical mandate to use corporal punishment on your children. Again, no, not right, wrong, wrong, wrong. My gut tells me this. Science backs me up on this. And the way that God, our parent, lovingly guides and disciplines sheep with a rod is not to intimidate, is not to injure, is not to break, is not to pain and cause shame. Some people have awful human relationships because someone told them that a punishing parent is what God is like. And other people have awful images with the divine because of their parents who was one that intimidated or shamed or used physical force to scare them. That, my friend, is a chicken and egg situation. It doesn't really matter which one came first. They keep perpetuating each other generation after generation. But if we listen to what David's saying, the good shepherd and the understanding of the good shepherd that way gives us a chance to break this cycle. Because David says, and the psalm says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And because the Hebrew word always has a little more to offer, it's comfort and consolation. And consolation is not shaming. Consolation is not manipulation to try to elicit better behavior. It is not hierarchical. It is another one. It's another form of that coming beside, to console you, come beside someone. It says, I'm with you in your suffering. And that's not much unlike the cross, where our God displays how far they will go to demonstrate that they suffer along with us. I am with you in your suffering. I'm coming right to where you are in the worst of what you can construct for yourself, and I'm showing you a way out of that valley. So friend, sheep, your God offers you consolation for the times that you have sabotaged your own good pathway and instead ended up in a valley. That is a good, good shepherd. Do we have any note takers here that need point one? Um, just for you. We can rest because we know that even in our lowest point of self-imposed misery, God stays with us step by step and leads us out. Or more simple yet, we can rest because God meets our self-sabotage with comforting help. Moving along. The next verse tells us, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So David and his shepherd have emerged from the valley. And again, I can't help but go back to this image of a romantic couple. Now David's shepherd is not just throwing out an old blanket on the ground, tossing some Wawa hoagies and some Turkey Hill iced teas on it and saying, let's eat up. Um, The word prepare is more richly translated as as arranging. Imagine making the arrangements, preparing something ahead of time, and then placing it on the table. And our, our word for table is not just, we're not talking about a wobbly card table. We're not talking about a splintery picnic table. This word actually means more than just a physical table. It means um, it, would, it would be more appropriately described as a meal so grand that it has to be spread out. So you know, a, a full spread. What would be on your full spread? 
My quiche. Oh, thanks. It is a good quiche. Yeah. That was a spread. We had a good time. Come to my table. I'll make a spread for you. Yeah, whatever it is. And that is what your God wants to prepare for you. Um, not, is that what you want? Do you want just a blanket and a wawa hoagie? Or do you want dinner and blank with the whole spread? And this refreshing meal is not far off. David's, it's not like, oh, you can have this here if you go to the right place. But it's brought to David. It says, you have prepared this table before me, literally meaning, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we'll do it later, Um, in front of my face. I'm like her meal in front of her face right now. This is a good example of this. You're going to have to take her away. Um, So a meal prepared in front of your face. I'm picturing a person whose eyes are wide, their jaw is dropping, who might just be drooling a little bit seeing what has been prepared for her. In this grand picnic meal, the shepherd is offering is right also in the presence of my enemies, or literally right in front of those who are closing in on me. The shepherd is so sure of their ability to protect that the sheep can enjoy this full spread even as the enemy is closing in. And as this verse goes on, we find out that in addition to the food and the protection from the enemy, those same things that we remember from verse 2, we also heard in verse 2, that there was protection from fear, from friction, from flies, and from famines. We get that sort of protection from flies um, when they talk about your head being anointed with oil. For a sheep, that would be something that would almost acting like a bug spray or a healing balm to wounds where bugs had already infested. But for a human to be anointed with oil means that there is an esteem being placed on them. Um, It's a fresh head with a glowing complexion. David believes so much that even though he already told us about it in verse 2, he's going to say it all over again. So note takers, for your sake, I'll say it simply like this. We can rest because God assures our safety, our provision, and even our esteem. Still with me? One more verse? Okay. We didn't even have any comedy bits yet this week. Um, Just straight up in your face, Psalm 23. Are we okay with that? Um, Then let's keep going. This next verse says, surely, or as our Hebrew word expands to mean it, it is firmly established. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay, I guess I will reference a little bit of comedy just to pull us through this last little bit. Um, I recently watched a movie that was based on a true story. I don't know if anybody else saw it. It's a movie that came out last year, and it was called Tag. Anybody see Tag? Nobody saw it. I don't know where I saw it. It was on like Netflix or it's somewhere. It's available somewhere for free. Check it out. Um, But it is based on the real life story of 10 friends who went to high school together and now for the past 23 years have had an ongoing game of tag. Um, The movie was good, but the couple of interviews and short documentary about the real life friends was far better. Um, These 10 friends have devoted the month of February every year as tag season. So whoever was it last February 28th or 29th on a leap year is going to be it the next February 1st. And they start scheming and everyone else starts looking over their shoulders and being a little more careful and a little more uh, panicky about, you know, who's going to pop out from where. 
um, they have formalized it to the degree that they actually had one of the friends who was a first-year law student draft up a legal document with their rules. Um, their rules are month of February is when the game is played. Second rule, no tag backs. You can't tag the person who just tagged you. And three, if someone asks you, you have to respond truthfully. If they ask if you're it, you have to respond truthfully and promptly. So they're taking this very seriously. But it is serious in that it is serious fun. Um, over the years, these guys who are now in their 40s have gotten really creative. Uh, a Wall Street Journal article that was sort of the first thing that called attention to them um, says, the men have literally chased each other around the world, traveling by plane, car. Like in the, and then in, like in the 2018 tag movie, their wives often, often act as spies and their coworkers are recruited to be on the lookout for other players and bar them from entering the office or <laughs> exiting the office. Um, the real story is um, as good, it has some things that we don't even see in the uh, movie. Here are some of the examples of where they have tagged. They have tagged each other at a funeral. They have tagged each other at the hospital where one of their wives was giving birth. Uh, one has hidden in and popped out of the trunk of a car after traveling hundreds of miles. They have broken into each other's houses at night. They have flown hundreds of miles across the country. They have caused broken bones. They have dressed up in disguises and even once pretended to be a panhandler just to jump out and tag someone else. They have gone to great, great lengths in order to sneak up on, sneak up on and chase each other down for nearly three decades. But what does this have to do with Psalm 23? I think it fits perfectly because for me, the key word in this final verse is the word that we have willy-nilly translated in English as follow, as in the lamest game in the history of mankind, follow the leader, right? It is, it's not even a game. It's just something that adults did to try to make kids go places standing in a nice, neat line and tricked them into saying, come on, it's a game, guys. Let's do this. Follow the leader. Um, rather than follow the leader, what we have is we have... Um, the word in Hebrew, radaf, which means to chase after. So we have these sweet friends of the shepherd, goodness. And by goodness, I mean pleasure, bounty, beautiful, and cheerfulness. And the other friends, the other shepherds, or the shepherd's other friend, mercy. I actually preached a whole sermon on this a few years back. I embarrassingly pronounced the Hebrew word for that whole sermon, chesed. It is hesed. I know that now. You can go back and listen to that sermon. You can laugh at my amateur uh, attempt at Hebrew. Um, but hesed is the shepherd's other friend we would call kindness or loving kindness. And these two friends of the shepherd are not playing follow the leader. They are chasing after. They are in hot pursuit. Like the true story and like the movie created to tell the story, goodness and mercy are going to great lengths to jump out behind every corner and say, tag, you are it. You are it, the beloved of the shepherd. And what is this result of being pursued by uh, these servants of God, goodness and mercy? It is that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, now, we have far more ideas and constructs of certainty than any actual certainty about what forever means. Uh, despite the roots of our faith tradition, um, this actual scripture means, forever means a very long time. 
Um, we have almost always looked at verses like this with a sort of post-death lens of, oh, that's talking about eternity after we die. Um, but another translation says what I can feel more certain about. It says, instead of forever, it says, all the days of my life. So let's not here this morning try to sit and figure out what our post-death promises, but let's look at this slice of eternity that we're in right now. Eternity doesn't start at your last breath. Eternity is all of it, so we are in it already. Right now, where we can be just as we are if we realize it, dwelling in the house of the Lord. There is nothing to keep us from being at home with the good shepherd. There is nothing that an enemy can bring. There is no scarcity of resources that needs to send us out looking for something to eat somewhere else. There's no amount of shame for our own self-imposed valleys that needs to exile us from being at home with the good shepherd. All of the days of our lives does not start later today or tomorrow or next Tuesday. It doesn't start when we reach a certain income level or attain that relationship. It doesn't start when we cross off the final item on our to-do list. Spoiler alert, that's never going to happen. It doesn't come when we retire, and we don't have to wait until we die to rest. You've heard people say that, I'll sleep when I die, I'll rest when I die. But no, rest is offered today, here, now. And I'm going to hearken back to my favorite, I told you in a sermon a while ago, my favorite Bible verse. It's going to go on my body in the ink one day. Um, again and again, you can, you can search the archives for this one too. I did the sermon back in the winter the verse that comes from the story of the lost son. You are always with me, and all I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. You are always with me. Always means now. You don't have to wait, and you don't have to get somewhere else to be able to rest. You are already home in the house of the Lord. So rest, rest. Instead of me adding words with a prayer, I'm going to give us a moment of silence to just speak what we need to God, hear what we need from God, or do nothing and just rest. Let's take just a few moments for that. Amen. Amen.